It is not the critic who counts. It's not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly. Nine years after the speech given in the last episode, Theodore Roosevelt gives another speech, this time in Paris, which became known as the man in the arena, named after this passage that made the speech famous. This is how Brene Brown starts her book, Daring Greatly, how the courage to be vulnerable transforms the way we live, love, parent, and lead. She has spent decades researching and presenting on how shame and fear affect us and how vulnerability and empathy provide the path to the wholehearted, authentic life. So in a quote from Bruce Lee, he actually equated personal authenticity as the object of life and the only real measure of success. So let's hear how Brene Brown defines success, or she puts it, wholehearted living, and how being vulnerable and authentic with ourselves and others lies at the very center of success. How does our definition of success shape how we live our daily lives? Join me, your host, Michael Bauman, as we create a life of success by exploring the cutting-edge research in happiness, motivation, psychology, philosophy, and more. Welcome to Thrive Culture Success Engineering. In another of Brene Brown's books, The Gifts of Imperfection, she defines 10 guideposts for wholehearted living, or to put it another way, how to live the successful life. So guidepost number one, cultivating authenticity. So letting go of what people think. Number two, cultivating self-compassion, letting go of perfectionism. And if I'm honest or vulnerable, this is probably a big challenge for me. Then number three, cultivating a resilient spirit, letting go of numbing and powerlessness. So letting go of the behaviors that we use to numb our pain and avoid or actually feeling. Number four, cultivating gratitude and joy. And we'll see this as a very important aspect of being happy that we'll find out in the research that I'll present in a couple episodes. So cultivating gratitude and joy, letting go of scarcity and fear of the dark. And that's very important during this time. Number five, cultivating intuition and trusting faith, letting go of the need for certainty. Another one that's important during this time and a challenge for me as well. Number six, cultivating creativity. So just letting go of comparison that we have with other people and allowing ourselves to be creative and express ourselves. Number seven, cultivating play and rest. Letting go of exhaustion as a status symbol and productivity as self-worth. So important and it goes against what most of our culture tells us to do. Then guidepost number eight, cultivating calm and stillness. So letting go of anxiety as a lifestyle. Really, really powerful. Number nine, cultivating meaningful work. So letting go of the doubt that we have in ourselves and our supposed tos. 
Then number 10 is cultivating laughter, song, and dance. So letting go of being cool and quote unquote, always in control. So giving ourselves permission to be ourselves. So this actually reminds me of a quote from Joanne Walsh Anglin that says, a bird does not sing because it has an answer. A bird sings because it has a song. And this book is about daring to sing your song, to be yourself, to be authentic, to show up, to be brave, to overcome shame. And then even in the face of imperfection and weakness, I would highly recommend this book as it seemed like I highlighted probably every other sentence. And because of that, I also am splitting this into a two-part episode as well to make sure that I cover the, the incredible points that she has to say in it. So Brene actually says, wholehearted living is about engaging in our lives from a place of worthiness. It means cultivating the courage, compassion, and connection to wake up in the morning and think no matter what gets done and how much is left undone, I am enough. It's going to bed at night thinking, yes, I am imperfect and vulnerable and sometimes afraid, but that doesn't change the truth that I'm also brave and worthy of love and belonging. This definition is based on five fundamental truths that she has found in her years of research. So number one, love and belonging are irreducible needs of all men, women, and children. We all need to be loved and to feel like we belong. We're actually hardwired for connection. And this is what I talked about in the episode six, I believe, on social, how our brain is actually wired almost more important than the fundamental needs of food, safety, and water, because we need connection to get those things when we're helpless to get it for ourselves. So we're hardwired for connection, and it's what gives purpose and meaning to our lives. The absence of love, belonging, and connection always lead to suffering. Number two, if you roughly divide people into two groups, you'll have on one side those who feel a deep sense of love and belonging and those who struggle for it on the other side. And she found there's only one variable that separates these two groups. Those who feel lovable, who love, and who experience belonging simply believe they are worthy of love and belonging. They don't have better or easier lives. They haven't had a few of their struggles or less traumatic experiences, but they have developed practices that help them hold on to the belief that they are worthy of love, belonging, and even joy. That's the only variable that separates the two, believing that you're worthy of love and belonging. The third truth is wholehearted living is actually cultivated through daily practices. This is something just like most of the things that make a difference in our life. It's about practicing it and changing the way we think, changing our mindsets. Number four, the main concern of wholehearted men in living is living a life that's defined by courage, compassion, and connection with others. And then the last truth, number five, the wholehearted identify vulnerability as the catalyst for courage, compassion, and connection. In fact, the willingness to be vulnerable emerged as the single clearest value shared by all of the women and men whom she would describe as wholehearted. They attribute everything from their professional success to their marriages, to their proudest parenting moments, to their ability to be vulnerable. And this is actually interesting because it corroborates the finding presented in the book, Crucial Conversations, that we talked about in episode 13 and 14, about the dramatic impact that our conversations have on our success and relationship. So specifically, the conversations around being vulnerable is what she says is the clearest value that these wholehearted people have. 
So Brene says vulnerability is the core. It's the heart. It's the center of meaningful experience. The birthplace of love, belonging, joy, courage, empathy, and creativity. So if this is such an important thing to live a meaningful life or to live a life of success, we need to define what vulnerability actually is. So she defines it as uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. So all the fun things, right? So she goes on to address that underlying discomfort that we feel, even talking about vulnerability, by clarifying, to feel is to be vulnerable. To believe vulnerability is weakness is to actually believe that feeling is weakness. To foreclose on our emotional life out of fear that the cost will be too high is to walk away from the very thing that gives purpose and meaning to living. It starts to make sense that we dismiss vulnerability as weakness only when we realize we have confused feeling with failing and emotions with liabilities. So I want you to think back to a time when someone that you knew was vulnerable and honest with you about something that they were going through or feeling. How did their vulnerability make you feel? I'd be willing to bet that even if there may have been some level of discomfort, if they didn't present it in a manipulative way, that it actually helped you understand them better. It helped you feel closer to them. It may have even helped you respect them more for the courage it actually took to share something that you knew was challenging and exposing to them. Very vulnerable. So overall, it probably actually strengthened your relationship, your respect, and your positive perception of the person who shared that with you. Now I want you to think about how you feel right before you are vulnerable with your weakness or your imperfection. And I want you to notice if any differences. So Brene actually found that we want to experience others' vulnerabilities, but we don't want to be vulnerable. So we recognize and respect it actually takes a tremendous amount of courage and bravery. But when our time comes to be vulnerable, it feels like inadequacy in ourselves. So why is that? Why are we so paralyzed by vulnerability when, if we have the privilege to be on the receiving end of it, it only serves to strengthen our respect, our connection, and our admiration for the other person? Well, ultimately, it all comes down to shame that's rooted in fear. So fundamentally, shame is simply the fear of disconnection or rejection from other people. But that doesn't change the fact that shame can be an intensely painful feeling of believing that we're actually flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. So if you remember from episode six, our brain treats social rejection in much the same way as physical pain. So they use the exact same pain network. So social pain and social rejection is real and it actually hurts as much as we are sometimes confused and we, you know, quote unquote, shame ourselves for not getting over it sooner. And then on the flip side of shame, though, sometimes people actually think that shame motivates them to do better and perform better. So they don't want to give it up because they're like, this is what drives me to be a better person. This is where it's important to highlight the distinction between shame and guilt. Shame says I am bad, while guilt says I did something bad. And this is a very important distinction. Dr. Brown says we feel guilty when we hold up something we've done or failed to do against our values and find that they don't match up. So this is an uncomfortable feeling, but one that's actually helpful. The psychological discomfort, something similar to cognitive dissonance, 
is what motivates meaningful change. So guilt is actually just as powerful as shame, but its influence is positive, while shame is destructive. So her research found that shame actually corrodes the very part of us that believes we can change and do better. And it's highly correlated with addiction, violence, aggression, depression, eating disorders, and bullying. Not a super fun list. In fact, researchers have not found shame to be correlated with any positive outcomes at all. So there's no data to support that shame is a helpful compass for good behavior. It's actually far more likely to be the cause of destructive and hurtful behavior than positive ones. So in light of shame being such a potentially damaging subletter of our brain, how can we develop shame resilience? How can we become resistant to the effects, this damaging effects of shame? So there's four elements to actually developing shame resilience. And these aren't necessarily in order, but they're all important and they move us in the right direction. So number one is recognizing shame and understanding what's triggering it. So can you actually physically recognize when shame rears its ugly head? Can you figure out what messages and expectations have triggered the shame? By now, you probably started to figure out how important self-awareness is as it's an incredibly valuable skill that's the foundation for any change in our life. Then number two has to do with awareness as well. So practicing critical awareness. So once we become aware of these things that are triggering our shame, this is about reality checking the messages that are actually triggering the shame. So again, this relates to the crucial conversations in terms of checking the story we're basically telling. Like I am bad, that's a story we're telling about facts. So are these messages what you want to be or what you think others need or want from you? Are these messages realistic and are they attainable expectations that you're placing on yourself? Then the third element is actually reaching out. When we reach out, we just break the control that shame has over our life. So are you owning and sharing your story? We can't experience empathy, the path through shame, which is what she defines, unless we're vulnerable with other people. And this ties in with the fourth element, which is actually speaking through the shame. So are you expressing what you feel and asking for what you need when you feel shame? We have those four elements to develop shame resilience. So let's talk about some of the ways that shame tries to control us. And I want you to see if this sounds familiar. So one of the first ways is we move away from the other person. So this is reminiscent of withdrawing to silence, like we talked about in Crucial Conversations. So we withdraw, we hide, we go silent. Then we have a move toward. So this is still not a good thing, but it's about appeasing and pleasing the other person. So we're still operating out of shame, but we're trying to please the other person and deny what we're actually feeling. And then we have a move against, and this is going to violence that we talked about in the crucial conversations. This is being aggressive. We're actually using shame to fight our own shame. So we shame other people because we feel ashamed. And all of these move us away from connection. Or again, that pool of shared meaning, that dialogue, those crucial conversations that we're having. But there's actually hope. We have hope to overcome this. So Brene says, if you own your story, you get to write your ending. I love that quote. If you own your story, you get to write your ending. And that's exactly what I'm going to show you how to do in the next episode. So in summary... We're all in pursuit of being authentic to our true selves. We want to show up. We want to be real. This is actually described beautifully in the children's book, The Velveteen Rabbit. 
The Velveteen Rabbit says, generally, by the time you are real, most of your hair has been loved off, your eyes drop out, and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter at all, because once you are real, you can't be ugly, except to people who don't understand. So Brene lays out 10 strategies for being real or being authentic, for achieving this wholehearted living. So number one, we have to cultivate authenticity, letting go of what people think. We have to also cultivate self-compassion and let go of our perfectionism, cultivate a resilient spirit and letting go of our numbing behaviors and feeling powerless, cultivate gratitude and joy, letting go of scarcity and the fear that we have of the dark of the unknown, cultivating intuition and trusting faith. So letting go of the need for certainty. Cultivating creativity in ourselves, letting go of the comparison that we have with other people, cultivating play and rest in our life, letting go of exhaustion as a status symbol and productivity as self-worth, so powerful. Cultivating calm and stillness, letting go of anxiety as a lifestyle, cultivating meaningful work, letting go of our self-doubt and our supposed tos and do what really brings us joy and meaning cultivating laughter, song, and dance, basically being free, letting go of being cool and always in control. And the uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure of vulnerability is at the core of living this meaningful life. So while we laud and we respect the courage it takes when we have the privilege of experiencing it from others, we can be paralyzed by the corrosive effects of shame that prevents ourselves from being vulnerable and experiencing this authenticity. So remember, there are four strategies that we can use to overcome shame and develop shame resilience. Recognize shame and its triggers, then reality check the shame messages, reach out, own our story, share our story, and then speak out when you feel shame. So express what you're feeling and ask people for what you need. In the next episode, we will talk about the exact strategies that you can use to own your story by recognizing when you may be numbing to your pain and overcome shame by being vulnerable, developing empathy in our organizations, in our leadership, and our parenting. I hope to see you back for another episode of Thrive Culture Success Engineering with your host, Michael Bauman. If you enjoyed this show, it would mean a lot to me if you left a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help people find the show. Until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you.